Well, g'day and welcome to the online ministry for St. Augustine's Anglican Church in Inverell. My name's Matt. It's great that you're watching with us today. This online ministry has been prepared for Sunday, the 23rd of April, 2023. Friends, as we begin, let me read these words of scripture from Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Let's begin in a time of praise. Well, as we come to the ministry of God's word, let me lead us in our collect for the day. Heavenly Father, you have given us your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins and to rise again for our justification. Father, grant that we may put away the old leaven of corruption and wickedness and always serve you in sincerity and truth through the merits of Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Amen. Well, our Bible readings today begin in the Old Testament with Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through to 12. Our uh, preaching passage for today is Psalm 15, and our New Testament reading is from Hebrews 12, uh, 18 through to 29. And so pause the video now and have a read of those together with whoever you're watching with, uh, and then I'll come back and share with us from Psalm 15. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, please guide us through it. Help us to see our need for Jesus and respond by giving our lives to you in praise. Amen. Well, every single day we make decisions and we ask ourselves questions along the way to help us with those decisions. Uh, But the longer we've been around, I think the more we realize the importance of asking the right questions. When I'm on a road trip and I'm thinking about lunch, I could ask, which of these fast foods do I feel like? But I've come in the last few years to realize the right question is, well, actually, which of these will my stomach handle the best? If you're buying a car, you might ask, hey, what are the features that it has? But in five, ten years time, you might wish that you asked uh, the the right question, which is, is this car going to be reliable? Perhaps you're looking to buy a house and uh, you might be looking at, the, looking at it and saying, hey, I heard it's been painted recently. What color is it? Where in fact, the right question might be, what things is this paint hiding that I can't see? Or perhaps is there termite damage going on here that's below the surface? Uh, there's wisdom in asking the right questions in life. But there is, there is one question that is more important than any other question. And it's the question of our psalm today. And so let's have a look at it together. The writer says uh, in verse 1, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? Now, I'm going to go so far as to say this is the greatest question in all of life, the ultimate question. In essence, the question is asking, who can stand in God's presence? Who is qualified to be in front of him? Or to put it really simply for us, who can go to heaven? Now, It's wise for us to ask the right questions. Perhaps we're buying lunch or buying a car or buying a house. But there is no more important question in all of life than the one the psalmist asks here. Uh, In 20 years, in 50 years, in 80 years time, all the other possible questions we might ask in life fade. They They aren't going to matter anymore. But this is the question that will matter for all of eternity. This is the right question to ask. Who can live in heaven with God? Now, as we begin reading this, we remember that this is a psalm and it's not written in the first place for us. Right? It was written by King David about a thousand years before Jesus was on the scene of history. And at that time, with David, there was not yet any physical temple in Jerusalem. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord's presence, it dwelt among the people inside the tent or the, uh, or the tabernacle. Now, for the Israelites, ancient Israel, Coming to be in the presence of God was a pretty serious thing. Now, the Israelites, they, they couldn't take it lightly. And now, being in the innermost part of the tabernacle, or the innermost part of the, the temple even, uh, wasn't something that anyone could do. It was only for the high priest, and only for a particular time in the year. Uh, and only then, after he'd performed the necessary ceremonial and ritual uh, cleansings and sacrifices he needed. 
And so the question David is is asking here in verse 1 is the right question. He longs for a real, a real and intimate relationship with God. One that's not just simply in and out of his presence like maybe the high priest would or like people then generally did in the temple. But he's asking not, not who can simply step in and out, but who can dwell, who can take up residence in the presence of God. Now, the ultimate question, it requires the ultimate answer. And David then gives us the answer in the rest of the psalm. How can anyone remain in the presence of God? Well, the original readers, they might have expected that the answer is some sort of ritual or ceremonial requirements, right? Performing the proper cleansings and performing the right sacrifices to make themselves acceptable. But that's not what we find here today. Now, what we see here is that being worthy to dwell in the presence of God, it's not dependent on ritual, rather more fundamentally. It comes down to an examination of our hearts and our characters. Right, last week in Psalm 14, we encountered the fool who, who in his functional atheism, he lives an ungodly life. But in Psalm 15 here today, here we focus on the qualities of a truly God-honoring life, of life, a life of holiness. And if we were to break down what we see in the next uh, few verses, we could say that they fall into kind of four main categories of things. And the first is verse 2, we see character. Verse 3, we see relationships. Verse 4, it's the heart. And verse 5, money. And so as we look at verse 2 now and begin with character, I actually think that verse 2 overarches everything that comes after it. In fact, I reckon that the very first line of verse 2 is a summary summary answer for the whole question. So have a look with me. What's the answer to the question? How can we live in the presence of God? First line of verse 2. It's the one whose walk is blameless. Now, blameless here doesn't mean uh, sinless perfection. Uh, blameless here is focusing on the, uh, the moral uh, integrity in life. Right? The idea is completeness. It's not just about uh, appearing to live a good way on the outside, but actually walking with God on the insides, walking with God in our hearts, in the place that only he can see. Now, uh, I'm married and both of my wife's uh, brothers are civil engineers and they work uh, in their work. Rather, they uh, they're involved in highway construction from time to time. And one of the things they told me they do in, in construction of a highway is they often take a core sample of what's beneath the bitumen to see uh, what lies below what is visible. And when the core sample is taken and it's laid down on the workbench, you can see the quality of all the materials at each step of the way down below the surface. And this is kind of what this first line of verse 2 is talking about. right? It's about integrity in walking with God. Not just in actions, but right down to the deepest level, right to the core of our hearts. Right? It's a true and a deep character examination. And I wonder, if God were to take a core sample of our lives and our hearts right now, what would he find? What would, what would be seen on the inside that isn't visible from the outside? I wonder if that's a scary thought for you. Because for me, it's a scary thought. Now as we keep reading verse 2, we see that this integrity throughout all of life uh, obviously overflows then into what is visible. All right, so we keep reading. Uh, it's the one whose walk is blameless who does what is righteous. 
And so we see integrity before God extends into what we do, into our actions. What we do shows what we believe in our hearts, or at least it should, if we are people of integrity. Uh, Verse 2, the third line of it, one who speaks the truth from the heart. Right, integrity before God also extends into our speech, into our tongues. In last week's psalm, we saw that the fool lies to himself in his heart. He says there is no God. But in contrast here, the godly man, he doesn't lie to himself or to others. No, he speaks what is true. And for us, part of, what is, part of speaking what is true is, first of all, knowing what is true in our heads. And we only know what is true, well, it's not by introspection and thinking about how we feel and what we can rationalise. No, no, we know what is true as we look to the word of God. And we let it shape our thinking. And perhaps we even change our minds when we see that what we thought is actually, it doesn't line up with God's word, like we may have thought it did. Right, so this is the the God-honouring life that David is laying out before us here. It begins with character, and it includes our actions and our speech. And now the rest of the virtues listed out in the next few verses, they move back and forth between these two things, our actions and speech. Now, verse 3 then, the category turns to relationships, how we treat others in actions and speech. And notice here that they're, they're all phrased in the negative. Verse 3, it's one whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbour, and casts no slur on others. Right, slander and slurring, they often rely on gossip and they focus on what is wrong with a person rather than speaking to them in love. At best, Slander is not assuming the best of other people, but at worst, it's willful, friendly fire. And I want to say at this place, at this point, the church is no place for willful, friendly fire. Now, knowledge and gossip, they they puff up. But speaking the truth in love, that will build up. That'll build up others. When we look at the second line in verse 3, it shows us it's not just evil words that he's talking about here. It's evil actions too. It's a call for us to be people who are a blessing to others. Not someone that others can't trust. And so the people that God welcomes in here, we find, uh, they're people who seek to honour and honour the relationships that God has given us. Well, we come to verse 4 then, and we see that a life of godliness would also, will also mean that we have a heart that's aligned with God's. Now, the first part of verse 4 says, One who despises a vile person, but honours those who fear the Lord. Right, this is about aligning our attitudes with God's. It's about hating sin, about being revolted by evil. Right, the godly person won't laugh when someone tells a vulgar joke. They won't idolise people who lives godless, moralless lives. And a godly person, a godly person's heart will ache as they see a brother or sister in Christ letting themselves be given over to sexually immoral behaviour or drunkenness. Sadly, I think these things can be overlooked in Christian lives. They can become respectable sins. But it shouldn't be that way. No, stand for the things that God stands for. Let your heart be a heart after his. Well, the second half of verse 4 then describes someone uh, who is faithful to their words, just like God is. Verse 4, 
and one who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. Now as we think about that, and no one has a problem are keeping their word when it benefits them. But how about when you're going to take a loss by keeping your word? I think that is the true test of integrity. Or what about when a better offer comes along? Do we keep our word then? I was hearing from a friend of mine a little while ago, and I remember him saying that right now we live in a bit of a Starbo culture. S-T-A-B-O. That is subject to a better offer. Does anyone else get frustrated when you make plans with someone, but then they cancel on you? They say, oh, something else has come up. Oh, now I've got something else that I've committed myself to. No, no, godly people stick to their word. Godly people stick to their word. Well, at verse 5, then we turn to money. He says, it's one who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Now, the first line here, it's not talking about uh, not charging interest in a business uh, kind of deal or business relationship. For the Israelites, there are commandments through the Old Testament that say, don't don't charge interest for your fellow brothers, your Israelites. Don't take advantage of them. The principle here is simply a godly person puts people before money. They put people before money. The godly person we see also cares about where their money comes from in the next line. Right? It's not accepting money at the expense of another person. They can't be paid off to change the truth. And they'll opt away from a job. That'll give them a wage for doing something that harms life or harms society. It's people over money. And so, there we are. There's the list of virtues for the person who's worthy to stand before God. And David then finishes off this psalm with words of a promise at the end of verse 5. He says, Whoever does these things will never be shaken. In other words, whoever does these things will be acceptable before God. The person who does all these things will be given access to heaven and will be able to remain there. And at this point, I want to stop and ask, If you were an ancient Israelite and you were reading this and reciting this psalm, would this fill your heart with confidence? Or would it fill you you with anxiety, with doubt, with uncertainty perhaps? In fact, don't even worry about the Israelites. How do you feel reading this? How do you stack up? Are you living the blameless life that Psalm 15 lists out in this way? What would a core sample of our hearts, our actions, our words say about our worthiness to stand before God? Now, last week in Psalm 14, uh, the, the emphasis there was on human sin, that there is a universal brokenness for all of us, all people. It's our inability to live perfect lives before a perfect and holy God. And so remembering that and, and now reading Psalm 15 here, I'm forced to admit to myself, I have not lived perfectly this way. Now the promise here is that whoever does these things will never be shaken. But if the, if the tree was to be shaken, so to speak, I would fall out. I have nothing to stand on. If my life was examined according to God's standard here, I have no place with him in heaven. 
Now, during the week, I read this psalm with one of our church members who's in hospital waiting to come out. And as I read it with her, I said, I look at this list and I'm forced to conclude, it's not me. I don't live perfectly this way. Well, she looked at me and she said, you know what? Neither have I. But I know someone who has. She said to me, Jesus is the answer to this psalm. Jesus is the one who perfectly lived this way. And he did it for me. And she was absolutely right. When we look to Jesus, we see a saviour who not only bears the punishment for our sin that we should, we should receive, but who also lived a perfect life of obedience before God that we should have lived. Right? In order to stand before God, I not only need Jesus' death in my place to take my punishment, but I also need his, his perfect life. And this is what happens for anyone then who trusts in Jesus. When we put our faith in him, we are imputed with his righteousness. Or to put it simply, we are stamped with his perfect record. Now it's sometimes called the great exchange. He got what we deserve. And in turn, we get from him what we don't deserve. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul there says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right, if you have given your life to Jesus, you have now been stamped with his perfect record. Now that is what God sees when he looks at you because of Jesus. And the result is that we can now stand in God's presence. Now, for the original recipients of this psalm, uh, they were yet to receive the full revelation of God. And so for them, God's presence was a tent, or it was a mountain, or it was the temple. But in our New Testament reading from, from Hebrews 12, uh, there the writer tells us that we are not approaching a physical mountain like Sinai, nor are we approaching God by, by coming into a physical tent, or a physical temple for that matter. Now the writer says in, in Hebrews 12 verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Right? Heaven is the ultimate reality of being in the presence of God. And knowing Jesus doesn't only give us entrance into his presence, but it also gives us a permanent residence. Right? At the end of that at the end of the psalm reading, it talks about the truly godly person never being shaken. And at the end of the Hebrews reading, uh, the writer says that. God will shake things up on the final day. And only the, only the things that cannot be shaken will remain. Now, if you trust in Jesus, if you have found new life in him, then you cannot be shaken. You can speak the truth in your heart. That because of Jesus, you are a citizen of heaven. That is your future and your true home. And by grace, by the grace of God, my uh, ability to live the Psalm 15 life of godliness is no longer the determining factor in my, my being good enough for God. And that's a good thing. Because I can't live up to God's perfect standard on my own. I fail again and again. But no, no. I am now stamped with Jesus' righteousness. And that's what God sees. Praise the Heavenly Father who's done that for us. 
But as we come to close now, as we think about that, now some of you may be reading this and, and thinking, does that mean that I can leave Psalm 15 behind then? Can I say, Jesus has lived that perfect life for me, now I don't have to worry about it. Can I say that? No, no I can't. For ancient Israel, the words of this psalm made it really clear that faith and life are not separable. Right, for Israel, they were called, Leviticus 19, to be holy, not to get right with God, but to be holy because God is holy. And do you think that is any different for us who have been saved by the blood of Jesus? No way, it's not. It's in 1 Peter 1.15, that same call repeated. He says, as the one who called you is holy, so you are to be holy in all that you do. Right? If you've received the grace of Jesus, if you've received his death in your place, then in the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. If Jesus is our savior, then we need to let him be Lord of our lives as well. And his ways are good. His ways are the best. And I don't see Psalm 15 as a burden, but as something I can joyously strive to live out by the power of the Spirit working within me. Right? Not as my means of accessing God, but because in God's love, he has already made that possible for me in Jesus. And so why would I not strive to be a Psalm 15 person then in response to, lo- to knowing his love and mercy? Now, last week I said that as we seek to read and apply the Psalms for ourselves, a helpful question we might ask is, how can we think of these words of the Psalm being either sung by Jesus or being sung to Jesus? Last week I showed you how the words of Psalm 14 could have been on the lips of Jesus. And I want to do the opposite today. I want you to see how reading Psalm 15 here, we can sing this back to Jesus. Thank you, Jesus that you have lived the perfect life where I couldn't. Thank you that I will never be shaken from the presence of God because of you, Jesus. Jesus, take my life and make me a Psalm 15 person by the power of your spirit so that you would be glorified through me. And where I fail, never let me forget that I have the grace and I have forgiveness through your death for me. Jesus, thank you that I have been imputed with your perfect good record. I've been imputed with your righteousness. Friends, what a wonderful song that we can sing to our Lord. Amen.
consider Christ that he should trust his father in the garden of Gethsemane though full of dread and fearful of the anguish he drank the cup that was reserved As we come to a time of prayer, please take a moment now to pause the video and be praying for things that are happening in your life, things that are happening in the life of our church or your church if you're not a part of St. Augustine's. Be praying for things that are happening uh, around our country and in our world. Uh, we have a God who hears us. We have, a, we have a big God. And so we should be praying big prayers to him. After we pray, then we'll have a final time of praise.
joy and grief in lonely sea. Never alone, for Christ is us. He lives in us, we live in Him. Until we reach that final day, when fears are gone, cast far away, Secure trust in his love. Never alone. Christ is with us. He's with us. Well, as you go, let me encourage you with the words that I shared earlier uh, from 2 Corinthians 5, words that perfectly capture how we read Psalm 15. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Have a great week.